Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I am an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And if you've been listening to the PlayStation series of episodes on Tech Stuff, you've heard me talk about the birth of the console from the moment that Ken Kutaragi, who was a Sony engineer at first and then rose to the head of Sony Computer Entertainment, he first started working on the project in secret, even to members of Sony's own board of directors. And I went all the way up to when Ken Kutaragi left the company in 2007, in large part. He would totally cut ties in 2011. But that was after the PlayStation 3 had kind of a lackluster debut. It didn't go as well as the company had expected. In this episode, my plan is I'm going to finish off the PS3's story, then we're going to talk about the PS4, and we'll conclude with the little bit of information we have about the upcoming PS5, because as of the recording of this podcast, that console has yet to come out. So let's get started. And we're going to backtrack just a touch to talk about a service that Sony launched in 2006. So that's one year before the father of the PlayStation would leave the company. This was the same year that the PlayStation 3 came out after a a couple of delays. That was another reason why Ken Kutaragi was sort of put into the back seat. It's called the PlayStation Network, and this is an online service, something similar to Microsoft's Xbox Live service. Gamers can connect to the network for downloadable content and services like messaging. Xbox Live had a couple of tiers of service. There was a free tier called Xbox Live Silver, which supported some features, but not stuff like online gameplay. So if you wanted to play cooperatively or competitively online, you needed to uh, pay for a subscription to Xbox Live Gold. The PlayStation Network was advertised as just being free of charge. You wouldn't have to pay extra for the services, and that would allow for online play. However, when it launched, the PlayStation Network had several features that only had limited support, indicating that even at this stage, the online capabilities of the console were more of a reaction to Microsoft rather than a carefully designed Sony project. And we're going to talk a lot more about the PlayStation Network a little bit later in this episode. So, one thing that was still going on, even as late as 2007, when Ken Kutaragi would leave the company, was that Sony was still producing the PlayStation 2. That console originally debuted way back in 2000. The PS3 came out in 2006, and Sony would keep making the PS2 until 2012, essentially just before Sony would unveil the PS4. That's the point when manufacturing facilities finally stopped rolling off freshly built PS2 consoles from the assembly lines. So even as I wrap up the PS3 story, we should keep in mind that the PS2's tale wasn't over yet either. It kept going strong. And just because the PS3 had a rocky start doesn't mean Sony would abandon that console quickly either. Just as Sony had supported the original PlayStation and the PS2 for a decade or longer, so too would it support the PS3. One thing I didn't touch on in the last episode has to do with people finding a good use for the cell processor. That's the processor that Sony, Toshiba, and IBM, aka STI, developed together for the PS3 specifically. And if you remember from my last episode about the PlayStation, I mentioned Kutaragi intended the cell microprocessor architecture to serve as the foundation for lots of other Sony products. Well, that didn't really happen in a big way, but other groups found uses for the tech that went well outside the realm of video games. This story is all about how researchers managed to kludge together a network of PlayStation consoles to act as a sort of cluster computer that could perform calculations at such a high rate that it was like having access to a genuine supercomputer. And this idea wasn't a new one. Folks had tried doing it even back in the old PS2 days with that console's Emotion Engine processor. Sony had released a kit that allowed developers to install Linux, that's an operating system, on the PS2 for the purposes of coding games. But that meant that you could code lots of other stuff, too. And engineers at the National Center for Supercomputing Applications, or NCSA, tried to turn a bunch of PS2 game systems into a computing cluster. See, 
supercomputers are incredibly expensive to make. Even renting time on a supercomputer is pricey, and there are a lot of different research projects that could benefit from having access to that sort of processing power. Using PlayStation 2 consoles, which were insanely cheap in comparison to a supercomputer, would be an amazing workaround. But the researchers found that the PS2 wasn't really suited for that kind of work, and they frequently encountered problems, particularly with system memory, that made the PS2 sort of a non-viable option. But then the PS3 came along, and the story changed. The initial PS3s seemed ideal for the supercomputer treatment. It was easier to load Linux on them. They didn't have the same memory issues. Soon, you had research organizations around the world sweeping up PS3 consoles, not to play games, but in order to run complex processes, such as simulations about black holes. I'm not kidding. They really were used to do this. That's what the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth researcher Gaurav Khanna did. He worked for several weeks developing the code that would allow him to network together multiple PS3s and use them like a supercomputer in order to run scientific calculations related to black hole research. That is some seriously cool tech. Ultimately, he was able to connect 176 PS3 consoles to act like a supercomputer, gaining access to computational processing power this team would otherwise never had access to. It just, black hole research isn't one of those areas that gets tons of funding thrown at it, so they have to make a little money go a long way, and this was one of the ways they were able to do it. And he wasn't the only one doing this. Not only were other research facilities trying out similar approaches, the United States military was as well. The Air Force Research Laboratory built one of the largest networks of PS3s in a project called Condor Cluster. But this project launched in 2009. That was right around the same time Sony was making some decisions that made everything much more difficult if you wanted to make a, a computer cluster out of PS3s. See, like other PlayStation consoles, Sony would release several updated models of the PS3. And the newer versions were typically slimmer and smaller, and sometimes had new features, or in a few cases, sometimes they got rid of old features that Sony no longer wanted to support. The newer PC PS3 models, the ones that were coming onto store shelves around the time that Condor Cluster was getting started, wouldn't let you load Linux on them the way the old ones did. Sony had removed that capability. And even the old consoles were affected if they had been connected to Sony's online services because the company had released a firmware update that nullified the Linux solution on those old consoles. So when a project like Condor Cluster comes along, everyone working on it was left searching for older PS3 consoles that had not been updated. They hadn't had that firmware update installed on them. Sony had a warehouse of a pretty hefty collection of older PS3s that were sitting in Chicago, Illinois. And initially, the company's intention was to recall all those old consoles. They weren't going to let them go onto the market at all. Representatives from the U.S. Air Force had to actually convince executives at Sony to sell off those old consoles to Condor Cluster rather than just recalling them. Apparently, it took a few phone calls and meetings to make this happen. Now, ultimately, Condor Cluster did take off, pun intended, and it did so with 1,760 PlayStation 3 consoles. So 10 times the number that were used to research black holes, and these were all wired together to form the backbone for the Condor cluster system. The Air Force stated that the intended uses for the system included radar enhancement, AI research, and satellite image recognition processes. It was also used, at least reportedly, to analyze images collected by surveillance drones. So um, this isn't a period of American history that gets kind of dicey, especially when it talks about you know drone surveillance and, and potentially attack drones. But anyway, at the time of the system's unveiling, it was estimated to be the third most powerful supercomputer in the world, although other reports disputed that and said it was much further down the list, ranking at around number 35 for fastest supercomputers. Though, I guess you could also make an argument that powerful and fast are two different metrics, uh, so it really just depends on what they were actually measuring, and neither of the press releases I found got into specifics. Anyway, I should use the past tense for Condor Cluster, because that project ended around 2015. 
By that time, other computing model power capabilities were outstripping what 1,700 or so PS3s could do. The Air Force would donate some of the PS3s to other research projects, and then they sold off the rest. And there are some projects that still use PS3s to help run processes, but a lot of those projects have then moved on to different approaches in processing or moved operations into the cloud, for example. It just turned out that the rest of computing power kind of caught up and then surpassed the PS3, making it less useful. In 2007, the same year that Ken Kutaragi would leave Sony, the company introduced the PlayStation Eye peripheral for the PS3. Now, you might remember that when I was talking about the PS2, that the company experimented with a webcam peripheral called iToy. Well, in many ways, uh, the PlayStation Eye was the next generation of that webcam technology. It could capture video at a higher frame rate, which means more frames per second. That gives you a, a much more smooth video quality and also at a higher resolution than the earlier iToy. It also had a more sophisticated microphone than the earlier iToy, and on the software side, Sony included facial recognition support, which the company claimed could not only recognize faces and uh, expressions, but also recognize the orientation of a face, such as where you are looking at any given time, kind of like a very primitive version of eye-tracking technologies. One year after Kutaragi left, so we're talking around 2008 at this point, Sony would release the DualShock 3 controller, which officially replaced the 6-axis controller. The DualShock 3 was essentially a 6-axis controller with rumble motors. So if you listen to the last episode in this series, you'll remember Sony released the 6-axis itself was a last-minute replacement for a boomerang-shaped controller that was never released. But they released it without a vibrating motor because there was this big uh, uh, intellectual property lawsuit that were, was leveled against Sony. But by 2008, that lawsuit had been settled. And so the little vibrating motors were back in the controllers, restoring haptic feedback to the PlayStation line. And while we're on the subject of controllers, Sony would introduce a new type of controller in 2009. It's the Move controller which looks a bit like a handheld microphone or maybe a flashlight. At the end of the device is a small globe, which can light up many different colors thanks to an LED on the end of the gadget. It's meant to work with the PlayStation Eye, the webcam that I had mentioned earlier. So the PlayStation Eye could detect the globe at the end of a Move controller and track it in three dimensions. So not just up, down, and left, right with respect to the view of the camera, but also closer or further away from the camera because it could detect how the size of the globe was changing, whether or not it was coming closer to the camera or further away. In addition, the Move has a pair of sensors in it inside the controller itself that track changes in movement so it could measure stuff like a change in the angle it was held or in rotation. And I could dedicate an entire episode to all the sensors and technologies that make the Move controller work but that's going to wait for a later date. We're going to stick to the consoles for now. So in addition to this wand-like controller, Sony also released a companion controller called the PlayStation Move Navigation Controller. You would hold this one in your other hand, presumably you would hold the Move controller in your dominant hand, and the navigation controller has buttons and a thumbstick on it to give players and game developers more options when it comes to game interface and controls. The move was, in many ways, a response to Nintendo Wii's success. The Wii had launched in 2006, and the novel motion-based control system was an enormous breakout hit among an audience that traditionally wasn't really into video games. So these were all the casual gamers and the non-gamers who went crazy for the Wii. Microsoft would have its own gesture-based motion control system, the Kinect, but that would launch a year after PlayStation Move. So Sony got the jump on Microsoft, even though they were trailing behind Nintendo. The Move would also play a part in a future VR system for the PS4, but I'll get to that in just a moment. In the meantime, let's take a quick break. At the 2010 E3 conference, Sony announced it was launching an online service called PlayStation Plus. Built on top of the PlayStation Network, PlayStation Plus introduced a subscription-based element to Sony's online platform. The subscription would give gamers access to free content each month, or 
really not free content, is rather content that was included in the subscription fee each month because you were paying for this stuff. But that included game titles. So let's say you'd picked up a PS3, but you never got around to buying that one launch title. Well, there was a chance that Sony might make that very game available for download one month on the PlayStation Plus program, and you could just snag it then. You wouldn't have to buy it yourself. you just get that as part of the subscription service. All it took in return was that monthly subscription. And when it debuted, it cost $49.95 for a year of service in the U.S., now, some months you'd say, wow, this is incredible. I got a great game or a couple of games on this month's PlayStation Plus. Some months you'd say, wow, I never want to play that game ever, but I guess I've got it now. Same thing's true with uh, Microsoft's service, by the way. It's not like Sony's alone in this. A year later, in 2011, the PlayStation Network was the target of an intrusive hack, meaning an unauthorized person or group of persons managed to penetrate Sony's network security, and they gained access to an enormous amount of information, including the personal data of around 75 million PlayStation Network users. The attack started around April 17, 2011. Sony would shut down the network on April 20th, so three days later, and it would remain offline a total of 23 days, the longest outage in the network's history. Making matters worse was that Sony admitted that, while credit card information was encrypted, other personal identifying information wasn't which meant the hackers potentially had access to millions of users' personal information in plain text data. As for who committed the hack, today that still remains a big mystery. According to Sony, the company had reason to believe that the people connected with the online hacktivist group Anonymous were responsible. But Anonymous denied responsibility. However, this is incredibly tricky because... Anonymous is a largely decentralized organization. In fact, calling it an organization might be a little bit um, misleading because Anonymous is historically more like a group of hackers and activists, anarchists, and troublemakers who share some but not all points of view. So there's not even a, a unifying ethos or philosophy in Anonymous um, other than you know, big companies and big organizations shouldn't have that much control over everybody. That's generally a kind of unifying theme, but there's a lot of splintering within that group. At the time, the general wisdom was that Anonymous had a motive to hack Sony because the company had recently filed a massive lawsuit against a hacker named George Hotz, a.k.a. Geo Hotz. He had found a way to alter a PlayStation 3 so that it would play pirated or unauthorized software, and then he published how to do it, and Anonymous was largely on the side of the hacker. However, the entire matter had been settled out of court by the time the PlayStation Network hack happened, and as far as I can tell, no one has ever been positively identified as truly being responsible for that hack. So that person's identity remains a mystery. Or those person's identities, because it could be multiple people. The hack and corresponding data leak would prompt the U.S. government to call upon Sony executives to explain what the company would do for all those who were affected by the breach. And Sony arranged to offer identity theft protection policies, essentially insurance policies against identity theft, with a company called All Clear ID to everyone affected. The hack set Sony back a pretty penny. The estimates on losses went around the $170 million range, which is a princely sum indeed. And the U.S. was not the only country to call Sony to task for this. The U.K. did as well, as did other places. Now, before I move on to talk about the PS4, I do want to say that several predictions made by Sony executives, such as Kutaragi's replacement, Katsuo Harai, ended up being true. Harai said in interviews that while developing for the PS3 was definitely complicated, that it really was hard to make great games for the PS3, he said it would lead to really incredible games as long as developers took the time to learn how to do it. Now, I mentioned in the last episode that if you do a side-by-side -side of the first Uncharted game and Uncharted 3, both of which were developed for and debuted on the PlayStation 3, 
you'll see a world of difference, despite the fact that they're but two games that are playing on the exact same hardware. The same is true for the last huge title to come out on the PS3. That would be The Last of Us. So yeah, the PS3 had a pretty rocky start, and a lot of gamers and game developers and game journalists criticized Sony for putting out an expensive console, missing a launch date in the process, and it was hard to code for than other systems, and they all said, or not all, but many of them said, this is a recipe for them to fail. However, in the long run, the PS3 would prove to be a very strong system, and it would sell enough units to wrest second place away from Microsoft in the console wars for the seventh generation of consoles. Nintendo's Wii was still in a league of its own, it was still in first place with a bullet, but Sony PlayStation 3 would take second place. And this is despite the fact that the uh, the Xbox 360 had a head start of like half a year or more really over the PS3. So that that's food for thought right there. Uh, it also helps that Sony supported the PS3 for more than a decade. Now for the PS4, the company would swerve again. Now, I don't know how much input Kudaragi had on the development of the PS4. He surely was working on it by the time he decided to leave the company. However, game systems are in development for years before they debut, and the PS4 would launch in North America in 2013, so six years after Kudaragi left. Now, interestingly, it wouldn't debut in Japan until early 2014, so might have been because of PS3 sales in Japan and Sony didn't want to hurt a good thing. Now, I would imagine that had Kuroragi had a large influence in the development of the PS4, it would have taken further steps down the same path that the PS3 had established. But instead, the PS4's architecture was much more like a standard personal computer. In fact, it would be extremely similar to the architecture used in Microsoft's Xbox One. And here's where, yet again, I complain about Microsoft's naming conventions. The PlayStation is sensible, because Sony just adds a higher number with each generation. So, it's very easy to talk about them. Meanwhile, over at Microsoft, we get Xbox, the Xbox 360, the Xbox One, the Xbox Series X. Knock it off, Microsoft. There's no way to meaningfully talk about generations of consoles with these sort of names. And I say that as someone who tends to play more Microsoft consoles than Sony consoles. Get, get your act together, all right? Also, what happened to Windows 9? Why did we go from 8 to 10? Anyway, this isn't an episode about Microsoft. I'll get back to Sony. Now, this design decision was deliberate by Sony engineers and executives. The company used components manufactured by microprocessor company AMD. So under the hood, the PS4 is similar to a typical personal computer. But during development, it did have a more mysterious code name, at least. Orbis. Now, what this means in a practical sense is that developing games for the PS4 was more straightforward. It was easier than developing them for the PS3 and taking full advantage of the PS3's capabilities. It was also easier to develop a game for multiple platforms because the differences between the PS4 and the Xbox One weren't so great that it would be an enormous strain on a game development company. So for companies that were looking to maximize their sales by reaching as many gamers as possible, it was much easier to port a title over from one platform to another in this generation. On the downside, this would mean that there would be fewer features that really distinguish the PS4 from its chief competitor. And it's also why the research organizations that had been using PS3 consoles didn't show any interest in using the PS4 in the same way, because the new console didn't offer any substantial benefits over a standard PC. So if you wanted to link a bunch of machines together, you would just go out and buy regular computers. There was no real advantage with the PS4. Now, the PS4 is Sony's contribution to the eighth generation of video game consoles. Nintendo's original console in this generation was the Wii U, but Nintendo would actually have two consoles in this generation, the second one being the Nintendo Switch. Microsoft's entrant is, of course, the Xbox One. 
The PS4 was the second console to debut in that particular generation of games. It followed the Wii U, but it came out a week ahead of Microsoft's Xbox One. And this generation is perhaps the most difficult to define from a distinguishing characteristics perspective. The new consoles were not a huge departure from their seventh generation counterparts, apart from the fact that Sony chose to go with a more straightforward microprocessor architecture, the PS4 and the Xbox One were undeniably more powerful than their predecessors, but otherwise, it's kind of hard to point out like big defining features for these consoles. Over the course of their production life cycles, which, by the way, is still ongoing as of the recording of this podcast, both Sony and Microsoft would release updated versions of their consoles that not only slim things down, which was typical, we've often seen you know, later versions of the same console just get smaller and, and more uh, compact. But they also up the ante on performance. So in some ways, this makes the eighth generation of consoles more like traditional PCs, except you can't really do those upgrades yourself. You can't break open a PlayStation 4 or an Xbox One and swap out components. I mean, you could, but you're not supposed to. You have to purchase a whole new console to benefit from the enhancements unless you really know what you're doing and you don't mind the fact that you've voided all warranties and potentially set yourself up for heartbreak if, uh, if games start relying on code that detect if, uh, if a console's been altered. Anyway, this includes, these enhancements include the ability to send 4K resolution graphics to a compatible television. Both Sony and Microsoft would launch updated consoles capable of doing that, but the launch versions, the original PS4 and the original Xbox One, did not have 4K capability, which means both my PS4 and my Xbox One are totally outdated. I have the original versions of both of those, so I can't run 4K resolution stuff from those consoles to a television. But that's okay, because I also don't have a 4K TV, so I wouldn't be able to see it anyway. Anyway, back to the timeline. Sony gave some early details on the PS4 at a special press event in New York City in early 2013, and at that event, they didn't actually show off the console. They rather gave some overall specs on what it had going on, and a big part of that actually had to do with its new controller, the DualShock 4. Alright, so I've talked a lot about DualShock controllers in this series. So what sets the 4 apart from the earlier controllers? Well, for one thing, Sony built in some of the features found in stuff like the Move controllers. The DualShock 4 has motion detection sensors in it. It also has a capacitive touchpad on the controller itself, mounted toward the front of the controller in between the two thumbsticks. And just a quick reminder that capacitive touchscreens have an electric field that's essentially running underneath the screen. And we humans are conductive. So if we touch a surface like that with our bare skin, we change the nature of that electric field because some of that electric current can flow into us. The capacitive touchscreen devices detect the point of contact doing this. There's like a grid pattern underneath it. And the disturbance of that pattern is what, quote unquote, tells a machine where you touched a touchpad surface. And then you've got a processor and you've got some software that determines what that actually means within the context of an application. Uh, so it might be like a, on a touchscreen smartphone that when you touch something, it activates a particular program, right? Or if it's a gesture like a swipe, it might mean let's move to the next photograph or whatever. The DualShock 4 also has a three and a half millimeter headphone jack. And honestly, I almost forgot what those are because phones have been dropping support for them for the last few years. I'm just really exaggerating. My computer, my laptop has a 3.5mm headphone jack, but it's just a regular headphone jack. Uh, it also connects to PS4s wirelessly via Bluetooth 2.1. You could also have a hardwired connection uh, if you bought a special, you know, well, not a special, but a, a long enough cable for it. The cables that came with the PS4 were notoriously short, long enough for you to be able to charge your, your controller, but that was about it, unless you were going to have the console in your lap as you played. Sony and Microsoft would do something similar uh, leading up to the launch of their respective 8th generation video game consoles. Both companies began to promote some stuff uh, in their consoles that fell outside the realm of video games. Both Sony and Microsoft positioned their consoles as 
kind of an entertainment and social networking center, uh, sort of a key component of a home theater system or computer system. So features like sharing stuff on social media or watching live streamed content or creating live streamed content and accessing services like Netflix became a really big part in the promotional efforts, both for Microsoft and Sony. However, I will say Microsoft leaned into this way harder than Sony did. In fact, to the point where fans of video games began to criticize Microsoft for shortchanging games at events like E3, where the company seemed determined to talk about pretty much everything besides video games. One other thing that would set the PS4 apart from the Xbox One, at least the original plan for the Xbox One, had to do with online connectivity. Sony made online connectivity an option for the PS4. Gamers were not required to have an online connection in order to play games. There would be no restrictions on playing secondhand games or sharing games with friends. Contrast that with the original plan for the Xbox One. That one was supposed to require a persistent internet connection, even if you just wanted to play a single-player game that had no online component to it. So you might want to settle in for a couple of hours on a solo adventure. You got your game. There's no online component to the game. But then your internet connection goes bad. Well, you would be out of luck if you were using an Xbox One, at least in its original concept form. And due to online copy protection, being able to share games or buy used ones and then play them on a console would be pretty much a no-go because the system would be able to verify whether or not that game had been registered to that console. And so gamers were really not happy about this direction that Microsoft was taking. There were some positive parts of this persistent online approach too, but the negative ones were really apparent, and Sony would end up enjoying the benefits of not going down that same path. In fact, Sony's presentations often would contrast against Microsoft with the company playfully and gleefully claiming, play as many used games on our system as you like. Now, this isn't an Xbox series of episodes, but I do want to just say that Microsoft famously walked back their plans. They dropped the persistent online component before they launched the Xbox One. Uh, so they did change that between the announcement and the launch. But um, yeah, that's for a different episode. Anyway, along with the console, Sony also introduced the next generation of PlayStation webcams. This time, they finally dropped the i-naming convention for this one. You know, they had the iToy and the PlayStation i. This one was just the PlayStation camera. The hardware actually contains two cameras inside of it, which are used to help sense depth, similar to the way our eyes work, and it's through what's called parallax. So parallax actually refers to how an object looks different when, you're, when you view it from different positions. And that's super intuitive, right? Like, if you look at something like a coffee mug from the side, then you can see the handle of the mug, right? It's just poking out. But then let's say you were to move so that the handle of the mug is behind the mug from your point of view, the mug would look differently to you. It would look like a smooth cup. Well, our eyes are obviously in slightly different positions on our heads, right? Our left eye and our right eye are offset from one another, which means we're getting two different feeds of visual information and each of those feeds is slightly different from the other one. And our brains combine these together to create our concept of what we're seeing. And that includes a sense of how far away something is from us. This is, by the way, only one of the ways that we're able to sense depth. Uh, parallax is one way. This is kind of what we talk about when you lose depth perception. Like if, you, if you've lost an eye or you're wearing an eye patch or whatever, uh, you, you have problems with depth perception because your ability to use parallax has gone. You no longer have two uh, streams of information coming in. But there are other things we use as well, like context clues, like environmental clues to kind of gauge how close or far things are. So it's not the only way, it's just a way. The PlayStation camera uses parallax as well. It has those two camera lenses to pull in information, and then the system processes that information to get a sense of depth, even without tracking something like the size of a Move controller's globe, which obviously is another way to detect depth, is just judging that relative size. The PlayStation camera could play a very important role in another PS4 system, which we're going to cover right after I take a break. But before I get to that break, when the PS4 debuted, 
It did so to great enthusiasm. After the first 24 hours, Sony reported it sold more than 1 million units. And the product had launched in November in 2013. By the end of December, 4.2 million PlayStation 4 consoles were sold. So it was already a hit. Now I have more to say about the PS4 and a bit about the PS5, but before I get to that, let's take another quick break. Before the break, I teased that the PlayStation camera would be an important component in a new hardware system for the PS4. Another piece of that system was the Move controller. So these were two already established pieces of hardware. The third would be a VR headset. Sony first acknowledged this at the Game Developer Conference, or GDC, in 2014, and they called it Project Morpheus. Morpheus would eventually, um well, morph into PlayStation VR. That became its official name as a, as a product. The PlayStation camera would be part of this system, and it would help track the position of the VR headset, giving players a more nuanced VR experience, and more importantly, working with another component in this system, the Move controllers. Those would work with the camera, and uh, the camera would be able to pinpoint the relative position of the controller and provide more precise gameplay controls as a result. So, in all, you would have the PlayStation camera, the Move controller, and the headset to work together to create PlayStation VR experience. And a lot of folks wondered if this might be the way to finally get virtual reality out of being kind of a curiosity or a niche market and into the mainstream. And you see, one of the really big barriers for VR is that it tends to be pretty expensive. Even if you can get the cost of a headset down to a couple of hundred dollars, which is still expensive, you typically need a pretty beefy computer system to run the software for VR experiences. You want there to be no latency between the hardware and the game. Latency is that lag. And in VR, latency leads to really bad motion sickness. You want graphics that are good and they hold up to scrutiny that they'll get from someone who is you know, immersed in those graphics. And it's a tall order. And a PC-based VR setup can cost thousands of dollars if you want one that runs really well. The PlayStation was a potential solution to this, right? PlayStation cost a few hundred bucks itself, but people already had the game system, right? Lots of people had already bought PS4s. We just, before the break, talked about how many millions of units they sold in just two months. Fewer, but still a lot, had the PlayStation 4 plus a Move controller and the PlayStation camera, so they would really only need to buy the headset. Other people would have to buy the full system. The install base for the PS4 was going fairly strong, so there was this kind of optimism that perhaps this could be the equipment that made virtual reality a reality reality for more players. It would take about two years from the initial announcement of Project Morpheus to the launch of PlayStation VR, and the headset hit shelves in the fall of 2016 for like 400 bucks. The PlayStation VR system is, is pretty versatile. Developers can create games in which the person wearing the headset sees one set of images, and people watching the connected television to the console they could see something totally different. So in other cases, the games would just have the TV display mirror whatever the person wearing the headset is seeing. But the fact that you could have two different displays meant that you could open up the possibility for cooperative or competitive gameplay so that someone sitting on the couch watching the television can play in the same game that someone wearing the VR headset is playing, but they're playing, you know, two different modes of play or two different aspects of that game. So it opened up a lot of interesting possibilities from a developer standpoint, and I think that's pretty darn cool. Now, did it bring VR into the mainstream? I would argue it has not, but it has performed pretty well. And if we're to believe Sony, it actually has sold above expectations. At CES 2020, that is the most recent as the recording of this episode, Sony announced that it had sold 5 million 
of the PlayStation VR systems. But that announcement also seemed to indicate that sales as a whole were kind of slowing down because the previous announcement, the one they made before CES 2020, had been 10 months earlier. And at that point, they had sold 4.2 million units. So if you were tracking trends, it looked like the trend had already hit a peak and now was starting to slope off. Now, they still sold 800,000 more units between those two announcements. That, that's, that's significant. But it was still a slowdown. Going along with that was a perceived reduction in the number of titles being developed for the VR system. See, at launch, game companies had released several high-profile titles, some in beloved franchises for the PlayStation VR system. But that trend overall has slowed down. There have been fewer of those titles released in the last year or two. And this is where we get into a sort of catch-22 situation, because gamers are reluctant to spend a lot of money, you know, like 400 bucks for the PlayStation VR headset, and then several hundred more for a PS4, especially if they want to get a PS4 Pro, more on that in a second. They're, they're reluctant to do that if there isn't already a big library of dynamite games available for that system. Meanwhile, Game developers are not really chomping at the bit to dedicate the assets that are required to build video games for a system that doesn't have a big audience, because it's harder to make your money back on that investment. If you say, well, we have two choices. We can make this one game that we can sell on all sorts of platforms and thus make a huge amount of money after investing X million dollars in the development process. Or we can develop this VR game, but we already know the audience for that is a fraction of the size of the overall audience. That's, you know, that's a tough call. So you have not that many gamers pulling the trigger on buying the system and not many developers making games for it. And the hardware, even if it's really good, won't move. Like it won't sell very well. And that's a real issue. That being said, we could see an enhanced PlayStation VR system offered for PlayStation 5. More on that in a second, but let's finish up with PS4. Now, backtracking just a little bit, in 2014, so between when Sony announced Project Morpheus and when Sony VR actually launched, the company introduced a new service called PlayStation Now, which was also, you know, similar to PlayStation Network. This service allows subscribers to play a variety of PlayStation titles through cloud streaming. So what does that mean? Well, in cloud streaming, the actual hardware running the game isn't your console or your phone or whatever. It's actually somewhere else, probably in a server farm that's potentially hundreds or maybe even thousands of miles away. The data from that machine gets streamed to some end device that you are accessing. So it could be a game console, it could be a computer, it could be a mobile device, it could be a smart TV. And as you play the game, your choices, so you know, for example, the buttons that you push on a controller zip back to the hardware that's actually running the game many miles away. For this to work well, particularly for very fast-paced games like first-person shooter type stuff, you want the, the distance between the server and the game system or the end device to be as short as possible because otherwise you get latency issues. And that's a big problem. It's really hard to make a precision run in a video game if there's a small delay between when you take an action using a controller and when you see it play out on screen. Like, let's say that you've got to make a jump and it's a really precise jump, but the game doesn't detect that you hit the jump button until after your character has apparently stepped off the edge of a cliff. It's a very frustrating experience. With PlayStation Now, gamers can access titles for the PS2, PS3, and PS4. Now, not all titles, mind you, but a lot of them, like more than 800 titles. And they can play them on a PS4 or on a PC. And a subscription is $10 a month. PS4 owners can also download around 300 titles using this service as well. Now, in September 2016, Sony announced the PS4 Slim, which, as the name implies, is a slimmer version of the original PS4 console, and they also announced the PS4 Pro. And that version of the PlayStation 4 can handle much higher resolution graphics. In fact, that's what supported 4K graphics, so if you also had a 4K television, you could get some seriously good-looking games on your home setup. 
Now, I've got, as I said, a PS4. It's not a PS4 Pro. And I really think it's a great system. There's some seriously, unbelievably great games for that system. There are many exclusive or semi-exclusive titles that are phenomenal. Uh, Like the 2018 Spider-Man game swings to mind. I love that game. It's a, a fantastic video game. Developers didn't have nearly the same amount of trouble programming for the PS4 as they did with the PS3. Even so, I think a lot of folks kind of view the PS4 as a solid console, but more of a course correction as far as design elements go than as something truly revolutionary. And that brings us to the PS5, which, again, as of this recording, has not been released. It's scheduled to launch later this year in Q4 2020, although with the COVID-19 crisis, all of that is up in the air because manufacturing and shipping have been affected, not to mention customer behaviors are changing dramatically because we have to prioritize stuff, right? So all of this has been impacted in ways we don't even fully understand yet by this global emergency. However, we can talk a little bit about what has been shared so far. On March 18th, 2020, Mark Cerny, a technical architect for the system, uh, some have referred to him as the Bob Ross of video game press events because he was very calming and very uh, articulate and people found it somewhat reassuring because this was in the early phases of people not knowing what to do about COVID-19. Anyway, he talked a lot about the PS5's specs in a very, very technical way, which was super cool, but probably not the jazzy sort of thing that a lot of video gamers were hoping for. One big thing about the PS5 is that it places a new emphasis on loading speed. So as games get more complicated, they require more computing assets. That's kind of a no-brainer. And that often means that they put a lot more stress on a console's memory. Game systems load information from hard drives or disks into RAM or random access memory. That's like the quick pick part of a computer system's memory. The, The system can consult that data rapidly as players work through a certain section of a game, and there's no delay because the information is right at hand. But unless the game is incredibly simple, there will come a point when the player maneuvers to a point that requires the system to pull new data into memory. So it's got to get rid of the old stuff and pull in new stuff. Memory is a finite resource, right? So you can't just pull the whole game in there. You could pull the bits that are important at that moment. And the whole process of pulling new info and dumping old info takes a little time, and typically that manifests in-game as a load screen. And Sony's details about the PS5 seem largely geared toward getting that downtime minimized as much as possible. And this is going to be really important because we have to remember that as consoles get more complicated, game developers make more complicated games. So we're going to see game developers really put these new consoles to the extreme. So one of the solutions Sony has is including a uh, solid state drive or SSD into the PS5. And for a long time, SSDs were super expensive. Uh, They have come down in price over the years. This is typically the way we see technology move from uh, expensive and hard to get to ever present and cheap. But solid state drives can load data into memory much quicker than older platter-based hard drives. And if you wonder what those are, I've done episodes about it, but it's kind of similar to, think of like a record player or a CD player. It's literally information stored on a platter and moving parts have to move to the right spot on those platters to pull data. SSDs have no moving parts. They are lightning fast. The PS5 will have AMD's Zen 2 microprocessor, and this is going to be one that has eight cores operating at a clock speed of 3.5 gigahertz. That's 3.5 billion cycles per second. It will also have a crazy powerful graphics processing unit, or GPU, that can operate at 10.28 teraflops, which sounds like something that Doc Brown would say in Back to the Future. A flop, just to remind you, is a floating point operation per second. You know, that's what flops stands for, floating point operation per second. Floating points are referred to decimals. It's When you boil it down, it's a really easy way for computers to handle calculations that could include very small and very large numbers. 
the this particular GPU can handle 10.28 million million of those operations in a second. Yes, million million. That's incredible. The PS5 is also supporting 3D audio capabilities, which will help developers make even more immersive gameplay experiences. I'm particularly excited by this because I think games that have really good sound design are incredibly impressive. I love games that that do that. The company is also working very closely with game developers in general just to make sure that the system is going to be one that game developers are going to want to develop for. And it's another kind of nod to the troublesome past of the PS3, which again, ultimately turned out well, but initially was a bit of a problem. And reportedly, it's going to be backwards compatible with PS4 games, though they may not all be playable right at launch. Uh, the, the Sony's been very careful to say that, it, that some titles will be supported with more titles supported down the line. The new DualShock 5 controllers will likely be similar to DualShock 4 controllers, but reportedly will include a built-in microphone, which suggests that the PS5 will have a voice-activated assistant akin to something like Alexa or Siri. My apologies if I just activated those. And there's a lot of speculation about the console design. It's rumored to have a sort of V-shape motif to it. So if you've seen any of the mock-ups or some of the photos that are uh, purported to be of PS5 developer kits, they have sort of this V design incorporated into the console itself. That kind of makes sense because V is the Roman numeral for five. Uh, there's an equal amount of speculation about the console's sales price. Sony hasn't given one as of the recording of this episode. Most guesses fall somewhere between $400 and $500 in the U.S., And that's about all we know about the PS5 as of the recording of this episode. There's a lot more speculation I could talk about, but I find that road not really worth traveling down. We can just wait to get more info later. And if there's enough, then I can dedicate another episode just to the PlayStation 5 and talk about that. But for now, I think it's time to say goodbye to the PlayStation and turn our eyes to some other tech topic. But I hope you guys enjoyed this exhaustive exploration of the history of the PlayStation consoles. Obviously, there are other things I could have talked about, like the PSP. I didn't even touch on that. But honestly, I think of that as sort of a side uh, thing to the PlayStation consoles. So uh, I might do an episode in the future about different handheld systems, and that would obviously take a very important place in that particular discussion. As with the Nintendo Switch, now that I think about it. So maybe in the future I'll cover that sort of thing, but for now we're going to leave it. Uh, And we're probably going to move away from video games for a little bit, just because, you know, I don't want to turn into a video game podcast. There's plenty of those out there, and they are all really good. I love you, the besties. You guys are fantastic. That's not a plug. They don't know me. Uh, I just love that show. It's a lot of fun. Um, They had Elise Willems from Funhouse on recently, and if you have not heard that episode of them talking about Doom, you should go check it out. Again, free plug. They have nothing to do with me. And that wraps this up. You guys, reach out to me with any suggestions you have for future episodes, whether it's a company, a specific product, a general trend in technology, anything like that. You can get in touch with me on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both is techstuffhsw, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 